Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning, and it really is. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Ruth, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, in the first chapter. And if you're using your pew Bible, a pew Bible in front of you, that would be page 222. Well, I began this series actually last week with an introductory message. In these next four weeks, beginning with today, this Sunday, we're going to be going through the book of Ruth uh, as well. We started last week and we read the first several verses of the book in which we learned that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a terrible famine in Bethlehem. And a man there named Elimelech decided to go to Moab because he had heard that there wasn't a famine there. And so Elimelech, Elimelech took his, uh, his wife, his dear wife Naomi, his two sons, Malon and Chilion, and went to Moab. And hopefully things would be better, life would be good. But in fact, Elimelech somehow died. And the two sons who were grown had married, and, uh, which was a good thing, very good thing. But then they died. And so Naomi was left uh, a stranger, um, a foreigner, um, a motherless widow in a foreign land. And Moab had been and was an historic enemy of Israel and would continue to be. Well, I want to pick it up with you now in verse 6 of chapter 1. Referring to Naomi, the text reads, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. In other words, the famine that had driven the family out of Bethlehem was over. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, you're... This is... Naomi now, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her sister, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That really sets the stage for what's coming next. You know, you want to read on and find out. But I'm not telling you this week. I'm going to ask you to join with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, one thing I did share with you last week was that this little book of Ruth, its place in the canon, its place in the in the Old Testament scriptures, among the Old Testament scriptures, has never been questioned. Um, it has, in the most ancient manuscript collections that we're aware of, uh, it has been a coveted and loved book, recognized as the revealed word of God for so long. And one of the reasons I think it is viewed that way or under, loved so much is because there are many messages in this book. It's not just one message. We talked about the central theme last week, but there are many messages in this book. And so as we look at our text now that I've read, I'm going to be focusing on one particular line of thought and theme. I think the vast majority, I'm not cynical. I'm not trying to be cynical, but I think the vast majority of human relationships, human friendships, are based on convenience. And I suspect the vast majority of relationships within families are based on necessity or on obligation. That doesn't mean there's no love in those friendships. It doesn't mean there's not love within the family. I mean, if love is working for the good of another, it's working. But the point I'm trying to make is that that love that we see so often and experience ourselves and show so often in our human friendships is often based on convenience. And that the love so often expressed within families is often based on necessity or on obligation. C.S. Lewis wrote about this at length in a book that many of you are familiar with. It's called The Four Loves. It began as a radio series that I believe he had given during World War II and then was set in a book, and it's a great book, and I commend it to you. But my point is not, to, is not to parse out these loves and so forth today. My point is simply to underscore that it really is rare to witness love that is free and that is selfless. And when we see love that is free and love that is selfless, we really are left in awe. It's not only exceptional, that kind of love when displayed is beyond criticism. 
We see love that is free and it is sacrificially offered and, and it is morally excellent. It is spiritually beautiful. And I'm not, this is not the punchline of his message. You know this. This love comes from God. And the truth of the matter is that when we are most like God in loving others, we are also most human. We are most human. And even people who don't believe in God will talk about love in this way, being divine. I want to give you a, 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 an illustration this week. I don't want to set anybody... Um, make anyone uncomfortable, but I'd like to say that I, I learned this week about a member of our church, uh, and uh, she and her husband have taken into their home a man who is dying. They have no relationship with this man other than the fact that they befriended him uh, as a lonely person in the apartments where they live. And yet they have taken him in because he has no one who's willing to reach out and care for him from his family. They have taken him in and he will live with them and they will care for him until he dies. That is free, sacrificial love. That is really remarkable. And when I heard about it, I was in awe of it. I was in awe of it. And I think that it is unusual. I want you to think about this. What do I mean when I say love that is totally free is rare? What I mean is free of any sense of obligation or duty, as in this is what I signed up for, or as in this is what a good husband would do or a good daughter would do. It's free of moral necessity. Love is free in that this love... No one can blame you if you don't love this way. No one will blame you if you don't love this way. We see this vividly at work in the example of Ruth compared with Orpah, her sister-in-law. Naomi repeatedly underscored to them that neither of them had any obligation to go with her to Bethlehem and to care for her for the rest of her life. She said to them in verses 8 and 9, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Return. Go ahead. It's fine. You've been very good to me. You've been kind to me. You have loved me. You have no obligation to me. They're under no obligation. And it was only after Naomi insisted two more times, turn back, my daughters. Turn back, my daughters. In verse 11 and in verse 12, that Orpah finally did return home, and yet with tears of grief as she bowed to Naomi's desire for her to return for the sake of Orpah being able to have a better life, marrying again, having a prospects uh, and, and, and a future be before her. And maybe it was that Naomi simply didn't, Naomi didn't want to live with the burden of, of realizing what, she, what these women were depriving themselves of if they did go back to her uh, or back with her to Bethlehem. I don't know quite what all was in Naomi's heart, but Orpah went back to Moab, and clearly she loved Naomi, and clearly she was, um, she was in grief over this. And no one would criticize, and this is my point, who would criticize Orpah for her decision? I don't think anybody would. Um, no one would say that because of her choice, 
Orpah was the bad daughter-in-law, but Ruth, because of her choice, was the good daughter-in-law. I don't think any of us, I hope not, would say that. Even more, no one would say that Orpah didn't love Naomi. I mean, because clearly she did love Naomi. So if you ask the question about this, this love that we see, if you ask the question, what is the difference between these two women or the way they love, I think the way to put it is that Orpah's love for Naomi was ordinary love. And I'm not demeaning ordinary love. It was ordinary love. While Ruth's love was extraordinary love. I mean, this really was literally the case of love that went the extra mile. I mean, she's going to Bethlehem. She was, she was giving herself to the care and to the service of her mother-in-law. This was so far beyond the call of duty. I mean, this was so far beyond any family obligation that when it became known in Bethlehem that this Moabite, what this Moabite foreigner had done, this woman from among the historic enemies and even current enemy of Israel, when it became known what she had done for Naomi, it became the talk of the town. When Boaz met her, he said to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Everybody, it's, everybody knows it. The whole story, I know the whole story. It's so remarkable. And later then in a situation, and we'll come to this, where Ruth had made herself vulnerable and the way she was relating to Boaz made herself vulnerable to a charge of immorality, Boaz would say to her, and now, daughter, do not fear. And I will do all that you ask, for all of my townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And that worthy is often translated in other places, noble or, or valiant. I mean, this is, this is really remarkable. This was beautiful, what she was doing. She was loving Naomi freely. There was no moral obligation. You understand what I'm saying? There was no, I signed up to this. There's no, I, I signed the contract. No, I'm, 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 I must do this. It's rare, I think, to witness love that's free. That's free like this. That's free of convenience. You know, that's free of obligation. The other hallmark of this extraordinary love, though, is not only that it's free, but that it is selfless. It is free and it is selfless. By selfless, I mean it has no regard for oneself. Uh, it doesn't have regard to the cost of loving the other person. And that's why this kind of extraordinary love is so often described as sacrificial. Because this is love that cuts to the bone. And when it does, the lover doesn't begrudge it. That's amazing. That is, that is selfless love. Ruth's love for Naomi was as selfless as it was free. She completely disregarded her own welfare. She, she was really cutting herself off from all the security, from all of the advantages that she had ever known. You think about it. Think about it in these terms. Think with me again. Think with me about Naomi, not Ruth for a minute. Think with me about Naomi and her situation. With the death of her husband 
and with the death of her sons, she was left a poor, childless widow in a foreign country. She was isolated from her own people. She was without family, without any form of security, without work, without any prospects for her future whatsoever. That's the situation Naomi was in. But do you understand, you see, that that is exactly the situation that Ruth was placing herself in when she pledged herself to go to Bethlehem with Naomi. There she would be the childless widow. There she would be cut off from her own people. There she would not have a job. There she would be as, as stranded in relation to all that she had known as Naomi was. It's a remarkable thing to me. In order to love Naomi, what Ruth was doing was taking Naomi's suffering on herself. And the suffering that had embittered Naomi, Ruth was freely and selflessly willing to endure. And that is the extent to which this extraordinary love goes. It really is extraordinary. Well, why do you think this ancestral record of Jesus includes this remarkable account of extraordinary love? I mean, you could simply have the genealogy at the end of Ruth chapter 4 without all this gobbledygook and sentimentality in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Why is it there? Why does it include this remarkable account? And I think the reason is because this ancestral record of Jesus, the story anticipates his own coming to Bethlehem. Before coming to Bethlehem, Jesus also emptied himself, as Charles Wesley put it, of all but love. He did not hold on to the glory that he had. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, the Bible says, taking the form of a servant. I did not come to be served, but to serve, Jesus said, and to give my life a ransom for many. Greater love has no one than this, but that he lays down his life for another. And there are many ways to do that. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The bitter pack, backpack, think of Pilgrim's Progress, the bitter load on our backs, he took on himself to free us from that, to care for us so that we would have true life, so that we would not be lost, so that we would not have our lives characterized from going to fullness to emptiness, but rather from emptiness to fullness, which is the theme of the book of Ruth. We're reading about Ruth, but of course, how much truer is this than of the Lord? That to love with extraordinary love, listen to this, please, 
that to love with extraordinary love required or requires the intentional reordering of our lives and our priorities. No one can just love like this. No one loves like this in a kind of, you know, spasm of sentimentality or spur-of-the-moment love. Uh, they can't do it. I mean, there has to be a predisposition of heart and life, of priorities within our own soul, so that when that need comes and when that opportunity comes, we can respond. We are ready to respond. This isn't simply... Uh, this kind of love is never a gesture of holiday goodwill and charitable generosity. It's not. It's not. It's very clear from the vows that Ruth made to Naomi that she had counted the cost, that she understood exactly what she was getting into. Those three vows that she takes are just so extraordinary, aren't they? The first one is set off by where, the last one is set off by where, and then the, the middle one is a bit different. And the point I'm trying to make simply about this is that she was taking with Naomi solemn vows. She'd been told by Naomi for the fourth time to go home. And she says to her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For here's the first vow, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. In other words, Naomi, wherever you are in this life, I am with you. Wherever you are, I am with you. This is what it means for me, this is what it means for me to pledge myself to you. I will be with you wherever you go. At the end, she says, and where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She is saying to Naomi, not only will I love you in life, I will love you in death, as much as she could say. Where you're buried, I will be. I will not be buried with my people. I will be buried next to you because I will die where you die. And then she says in the central vow, which is the central vow. The first vow, where you go, leads to this. The last vow, where you die, follows from it. The central vow is your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. And she takes these three vows And in doing so, she's invoking God then at the end as a witness and a judge that Ruth fulfills. She says, if I don't keep these vows, if I don't do what I'm telling you I'm going to do, may God do worse to me, far worse to me, if I don't. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You know, I don't know about you, when, it, when people are sick, and when they're dying or when they're suffering. There's nothing wrong with expressing sympathy and condolences. Uh, we do this all the time. I do this all the time with people. I think it gives them comfort. They're part of ordinary love. And again, I'm not necessarily saying ordinary love is all that common. Sometimes it's not. That's a good 
way to love. But what we read here with Ruth in relation to Naomi is a commitment, not condolences. And her words were true. She had counted the cost. She had reoriented her life. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Uh, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. If she had not reoriented herself this way, she could not have loved Naomi in this extraordinary way. She became, through this, a true daughter of Abraham through faith in the Lord God of Israel. And it was obvious to all the townsmen that this is exactly who she was. So they accepted her, not as a Moabite, but as a child of Abraham. And they accepted her because of the way she loved Naomi. And that did, ex that did include her own reorientation, her conversion, her coming to real and deep faith in God. I want you to think with me about another contrast here. And another contrast between Naomi and Ruth. Here's Naomi. She's an Israelite and she's adding bitterness to her grief over the deaths of her husband and her children. She's convinced that God is out to get her. She says it almost that plainly two or three times in our text. God obviously does not love her. God obviously is punishing her. Maybe she thinks God is punishing her because she left Bethlehem for Moab. I don't know. Maybe she thinks God is punishing her because she didn't put a stop to her sons marrying Moabite women who not have, would not have been believers in the Lord God. That is not a good thing to do. The Bible certainly teaches not to be unequally yoked. But the point is, she had her reasons for concluding God was obviously punishing her. She names the Lord as her God. But does Naomi really know him? Does she really know him? She believes, as one commentator puts it, she believes of God, she believes in his sovereignty, but that his sovereignty is without grace. She believes in his power, but that his power is without compassion. She believes in his will, but that his will is without mercy for her. How many believers do believe in Christ? But honestly, they have these deep suspicions about God. And so, when something happens, it immediately comes to the floor. That's it. I'm being punished. God is mad at me. God is angry with me. But then you have, on the contrast, Ruth. She's a Moabite woman, a widow, who's awful, also grieving. Her, her husband died and left her childless. She had been married for about 10 years. She had never had any children. Yet in her grief, she's loving Naomi freely and selflessly. And in the process, simply as part of that, pledging her to the, to, to herself to the Lord. How ironic it is. How ironic it is, isn't it? That while the faith of Naomi, the believer, is inaccurate in some ways, clearly, and 
unattractive in terms of its portrayal of God, Ruth the Moabite sees through what Naomi has said. She does not accept it. And she enters into a covenant of faith with God because she believes that God is merciful and faithful and loving. She believes that. And so does Boaz, by the way, who says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you from the Lord under whose wings you have come for refuge. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. He also believed and knew that God was merciful and faithful and loving. People say, well, how could... How could Ruth have gotten it right if Naomi wasn't sharing that? Naomi was a believer. Well, I think there are a few things in response that I'd like to say. Um, and David Galetta, where are you? I'm just telling you, since we had dinner last night, he told me I had to address this. I said I would. Then he passed the mashed potatoes. Um, <laughs> she had been exposed to the truth of the Lord for 10 years. And I doubt very much that Naomi was always feeling as bitter and low as she did after her husband and her children died. And we often find ourselves going into troughs and by the grace of God, we're not left there but are taken out. Uh, we're not left in that empty place but we're filled again and that will happen to Naomi. I think that Naomi, the God of Moab was Chemosh. He was a terrible demon God and there's no way any knowledge of love and commitment could ever have come to her through uh, believing in Chemosh and what Chemosh um, did including including sacrifice no but she'd seen the witness and she'd seen through it and let's not forget that when truth had been spoken to her it wasn't just it wasn't just words it wasn't it wasn't just ideas it was the truth about God that God had revealed of himself the Holy Spirit could and obviously had worked in her heart to say that these things really were, really were true. Now my question for you is, Christian, today, what is your understanding of God as a sufferer? What is your understanding of God as a sufferer? And are you blind to how God loves you? You see, Naomi was blind to the fact that God was really and truly and deeply loving her through Ruth. And Ruth was relating to her in a way that was so you know, healing and redemptive, but even more than that, it was like Jesus. He was loving her with the love of Christ incarnate, not Christ incarnate, love incarnate in her own life. So I say to you, Christian, today, honestly, what's your understanding of God? You know, sufferer. You who suffer. I think when my, when my friend is in hospice and, uh, and at home with a dear church member, I hope he recognizes that he is seeing the hands and the face of Christ tend to him and smile at him and care for him. This love that's being poured out 
There's nothing ordinary about it. Humans can possess it. And that's Christ's will for us. But it is not of, it is not of human flesh. And I would also ask the question, what is your commitment uh, to love Christians? What is, is it your desire? What is your desire and your goal? What are your love desires and your love goals and how you regard other people? And is your life so ordered that you can love extraordinarily? You understand my point? Is your heart in a place and your life so ordered that you can love extraordinarily? There are many people who love extraordinarily here. There are many. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think as I look out, I see Dr. Harding. And uh, knowing you over 20 years, Dave, I, I just know you've loved so many of your patients in such extraordinary ways. I appreciate it very much. And many others of you also love extraordinarily. But my question for you is, what... <laughs> Is this your desire? And if it's your desire, have you reordered your heart and your life in order to love this way? Because that is what it requires. When Jesus said, follow me, it wasn't an easy way. But it's a good way. It's a good way. I want to say this morning that as a church, we place great emphasis on faith, not on, only on believing in Christ, and, uh, and in the Lord, and everything is revealed, not only believing in him, but believing the right things about God. When churches don't do that, they go a, they've gone AWOL, and it's only a matter of time before that becomes clear. But at the same time, I want to point out to you that here we have in Ruth, God giving us a model of faithfulness. And yet this model of faithfulness is portrayed as God's love fleshed out in the life of a Moabite woman. Her mastery of doctrine is never put on display here. Her mastery of doctrine is not the point. It's doubtful that she possessed anything like mastery of the faith. She did not have that kind of knowledge in all likelihood. But what kind of knowledge did she have? She knew how to love with the love of God. And she did. And she's a model of faithfulness. She reordered life so she could live freely and selflessly as a believer, which means she not only talked the talk, right? She walked the walk. Now, what is it Paul said to the Corinthians as they were arguing with each other over all kinds of doctrinally related issues? In other words, how to apply doctrine, like what do you do with meat strangled or meat offered to idols? What does he say to them? He says... Love, knowledge, puffs up. Love builds up. What does John say to the church in 1 John? They're also dealing very serious issues about Christology, the doctrine of Christ. He says to them, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is remarkable. It is such a, it's such a statement about how we orient our lives, what is pleasing to God, 
Our faith, the faith, the details of our faith are summed up and expressed in this kind of extraordinary love, which, as I said, is beyond criticism. It's beautiful. It's excellent. We humans, as a matter of necessity, I guess, I think we often love as a matter of convenience or from a sense of necessity or obligation. But I'm saying that the Lord calls us to love as he loves. He calls us as the church and as Christians to love selflessly and to love freely. He calls us to create a legacy of excellence and beauty in our lives so that others know that God is true and that God is among us. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this remarkable story of dear Ruth and Naomi. And I pray that you would help us apply the lessons to, our, to ourselves. And I want to thank you, you know, especially, Father, that so often, uh, just personally, when I look at the love of, of Christ, Jesus' love, I'm wondering how can I ever do that or how does that... How can that look in my life? And yet here we have such a vivid example in, in Ruth. It's so beautiful. So thank you for the way you, you feed us from both testaments as your people today. And you strengthen us. And uh, you move us in the ways that you have us go. We bless you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Truly. Amen.